Hey, good morning. Glad to see you guys. Worship team, thank you very much. Thank you very much. You know, it's interesting. This time last week, we were at home because my, my daughter had surgery on the 13th of July, and she's at home with us, and mom is taking care of her. And she was having a hard time, you know, keeping down food and stuff, so, you know, she was having some issues where, you know, had to clean some stuff up. And so uh, it was right at the time, last week during worship service, you were singing a worship song. You may not see it, but he's working. You may not feel it, but he's working. He don't stop. He never stops working, you know. So we're, we're, we're in the house, and, you know, Sharon says to Siobhan, you know, um, man, I'm just glad, you know, we got our washing machine working because it went on the blink last week, and the guy came out and did a temporary fix. And so Sharon says, man, I'm glad that, you know, our washing machine's working. So I walk downstairs, and I'm thinking, Lord, thank you that the washing machine's working. And when I get downstairs, that worship, worship team is singing that song, and Sharon says to me, guess what? The washing machine stopped working. And I'm sitting up there saying, now, God, you got a sense of humor, don't you? I said, I just praised you for this, and now all of a sudden, you know, but then here's a song. You may not see it, but he's working. You may not feel it, but he's working. I said, all right, Lord, you're working. So I, I appreciate that, that song last week. It meant a lot to me and um, what we got going on here today. You know, you're not here by accident today. No one's here by accident. You know, in eternity past, on July 24th, God, whatever reason you're here, God, you're here. And so I don't take that, I don't take that for granted. And even the opportunity and the responsibility that I have to, to open up God's word and share with you, I don't take that for granted either. So I just want you to know, man, it's great to see you here today. And I just pray that God will speak to your heart uh, through the message. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you so much that you're God and beside you there is no other. And Lord, I know you have a word today that you want to speak to me and through me, and you're going to speak to your people. So I just pray today, dear God, that you would be glorified in all that's said, and that, Lord, we leave out here differently than what we came in. And Father God, we'll be careful to give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. For it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, Pastor Chris had told me about this probably about a couple months ago. He said something about, you know, speaking on, in July. And so God has put a message on my heart. And then just for the last month or so, you know, it's been trying to figure out now how do I want to unpack this message for you today. And so I guess God is saying, you know, son, it's more important about the, 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 meth, the message than the method. So I make sure that I unpack this in a way that God will be glorified and I think you'll understand uh, what I'm talking about. But as I come to you this morning, back in uh, 30 years ago, my cousin sent me a letter. And it was written by this pastor in from Zimbabwe, Africa, who had died because of his faith. He was killed because of his faith. And he wrote this letter before, you know, he, he, he was killed, evidently. And so, you know, he wrote this letter, and, and my cousin sent it to me. And I read this letter, and I said, man, a life. This, this letter's powerful. Man, I want to commit this letter to memory. Because you know how businesses and churches have mission statements. I said, man, I want to make this my mission statement. And this, and this letter was powerful. And he starts out and he says, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I stepped over the line. The decision's been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My presence makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished, I'm done with, low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. 
I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, positions, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, praised, recognized, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith. I lean in his presence. I walk by patience. I'm uplifted by prayer, and I labor with power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, or pander at the pool of popularity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. You see, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach until all know, and work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me, for my banner will be clear. And that's the letter that he wrote. And I said, man, that's, that's, I want that to be a mindset that I, got, that I want to have. I want that to be my mindset. Because as I address you today, I address you as difference makers. You know, I spoke to the Murray State uh, football team this past Monday. And I addressed them as difference makers. But man, as I come in here and I address you today as God's children, that we are truly difference makers. Where God has told us that we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. And salt and light makes a difference. So if you think right, you act right. So we have to think right. We got to see ourselves as difference makers, not just people living life, man. God has put us here that we are difference makers, and we are to make a difference wherever we're at. So that's kind of the message that I want to unpack with you today about being difference makers. I was watching a football game a few years ago, and I coached in Seattle with the Seahawks, and Bobby Wagner the Seahawks were playing the Los Angeles Rams, and Bobby Wagner was mic'd up for that game. So they had a mic on him so you could hear what's going on in the field and the huddle, all that other stuff. And so they're getting ready to go out on the field. The game is on the line. What the defense does determines whether or not if they win or lose. They were only up by two points, and, man, they had to stop, and they couldn't get a field goal or anything. And so Bobby Wagner's mic'd up. He has his back to the field, and his defensive teammates are standing right there in front of him, and Bobby Wagner says this to him, get your minds right. Get your minds right. He was saying to him, we know what's at stake. We know what we have to do. He said, get your minds right. And I discovered in, in my coaching, all the years I coached, the 32 years I coached, and even the years that I played, that we spend most of our time getting guys right mentally, getting them mentally prepared to play. Telling them to get their minds right. We know it's at stake. You know what? God's word is saying the same thing to you and I. As his children, in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, he says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. The mind set on the flesh is opposed to God because it does not submit to God because it's not able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God is saying to you and I as his believers, every day we get up, he's telling us, get your minds right. Get your minds right. You know what's at stake. You know what you have to do. 
And that is one, one thing I think the enemy doesn't want us to do. He doesn't want us to set our minds. No mindset is a mindset. And our minds don't automatically default to a spiritual mind. They don't default to a spiritual mind. That's why God said, set your mind. When this thing about setting our minds, it's like setting the alarm on your phone. There's three things that it takes. And if you know how to set the alarm on your phone, then you know how to set your mind. First of all, you got to be intentional. God said, set your mind. He said, be intentional. You got to set it. Next thing you got to do is you got to be specific. About how you're going to set your mind. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4 says, Since we've been raised with Christ, he says, Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things below. God is telling us we got to be specific when we set our minds. And he says we must continually set our minds. Romans 12, 2, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Man, it's a mindset that we must intentionally set, specifically set, and continually set our minds. That's the only way it's going to work. That's how we have to do it. So we set our minds. So that's what we have to do as believers. We set our minds. Intentional. When we get up in the morning, God, thank you for this day. I pray that my words, my work, and my worship, my conversation, conduct, and character would bring glory to your name. I pray today at work, dear God, that I would work in a manner that's pleasing to you. I do my work as unto you, not unto men. I pray today of my relationship with my wife. I pray I have patience on the job. I'm praying today. And you pray. Man, you can pray in the meeting, during the meeting. But it's a mindset. We got to set our minds. When you come to church, what is your mindset? As you came in here today, you got to have a mindset. You didn't just say, man, I'm coming to church. Maybe your mindset was, well, I'm just coming so I can check it off, check it off the list. But as God's children, as God's believers, we should have a mindset when we come to church. Man, my mindset is, Lord, I come to hear a word from you. I come to worship you today. Worshiping God is not an event. It's a lifestyle. So we come to continue what we've been doing outside these walls. But the only thing we come here to do is get a word of encouragement. A word that challenges us. A word that may warn us. And a word of instruction. So we came here for a reason today. So we have to have a mindset. You know, I'm talking to you like a coach. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a coach, so I'm just coaching you up today. You got to have your mindset. So, man, we come here with that mindset. Lord, I want to be encouraged, challenged, warned, and instructed. We also have to have the mindset that we recognize that we're going to leave here. The battle is not in here. The battle's out there. So just like in a football game, if you went to watch the Titans play and they stayed in the huddle all the time, you say, man, I didn't come here to watch these guys stay in the huddle. They get in the huddle, get encouraged, challenged, warned, and instructed, and they stay in the huddle. No, they break the huddle because the battle is out there. So when you and I know we come here to get encouraged, challenged, warned, and struck, we must realize we're going to break the huddle because the battle is out there. But the other thing we got to realize, our mindset, is I'm breaking the huddle. I got to recognize that I'm going to leave here differently than the way I came in. We should leave here differently than the way we came in. It would be almost like a physical reminder that you enter in those doors right there, but you leave out those doors. You go out differently than the way you came in. Listen to me, believers. We got to leave here differently than the way we came in because you got a word of encouragement, challenge, warning, and instruction. And we leave here differently than the way we came in. But what's most important after that is 
we must apply what we got in the huddle. You got to apply what you got in the huddle. All the years that I coached and played football, we never had a guy break the huddle and not run the play that was called. The church. Now, I'm talking about other churches, not this church. The church is the one team that breaks the huddle on Sunday or Wednesday and will decide whether or not they're going to run the play that's called. They're going to decide if I like the play, is it convenient, does it make me comfortable, do I agree with it? The church is the only team that breaks the huddle on Sunday in masses of 50, hundreds, and thousands, truly not committed to obedience. Because I say, you know, I, I don't like that word. I don't agree with that word. No, when we come to the huddle, we, we apply what we got in the huddle. Obedience is not an option. Having a mindset. All the difference makers that I know, they all had a different mindset. They had a mindset about stuff. Uh, back in 2012, I believe it was, when we, we drafted Russell Wilson as our quarterback. And we had just signed this guy from Green Bay. His name was Matt Flynn. We had just signed him, and they gave that guy a $20 million signing bonus. He was going to come there, and he's going to be the starting quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks. But we drafted this little runt out of Wisconsin. And I remember when he came to minicamp after we drafted him, Russell's standing there next to these other three quarterbacks that we had on our team, and these guys are 6'4", 6'5", and there's little Russell standing there. And I say to myself, this cat doesn't have a chance. You know, he, 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 man, look at him. But there was something different about him. He had a different mindset. Russell would be the first guy in the building and the last guy out, and you knew what his mindset because he would always say, the separation is in the preparation. That was his mindset. The separation's in the preparation. And so, man, that's how he carried himself. I had the pleasure of coaching Marshawn Lynch, beast mode. And people asked Marshawn one time in an interview, say, man, why do you run the football the way you run it? He gave him his mindset. He said, because I run not to get tackled. That's why I run the way I run. <laughs> he said, you know, one guy said, man, I'm going to go home and get in the beast mode. He said, no, you don't get in the beast mode. Beast mode is inside of you. Oh, Eddie George, one of our own here, right here in Tennessee. I got a chance to see his mindset, to wonder why he's such a great player. Heisman Trophy winner, rookie of the year his first year in the league, four straight Pro Bowls. I think he's a future Hall of Famer. Eddie has one of the distinctions that only one other running back has that played as long as he had as a running back, and I was an ex-running back, to play, Eddie played eight, nine years and never missed a game. That is unusual for a running back for any position, but especially a running back. Eddie never missed the game. And the only other running back that has that distinction is Jim Brown. He's the only one. But I got an idea of Eddie's mindset too. One day we're at training camp and it's hot just like it is now. And so it's hot and man, we're sitting in the meeting room and guys are complaining about training camp and how hot it is and how hard we're working and all that other stuff. And you know, and Eddie's sitting over to my right and they're waiting for Eddie to start complaining also. You know, Eddie, yeah, man, join in, Eddie. You'll validate what we're saying, man. Come on, Eddie. Yeah, say, yeah, I hear you guys. I feel you. And so finally, Eddie turned around to him. He said, hey, look here, guys. It's training camp. It's supposed to be hot. You're supposed to be tired and sore. We're supposed to work hard. It's supposed to be demanding. He said, this is what gets you ready. Mindset. And I told the guys, I said, that's why... He's Eddie George, 
What you see as a problem, he sees as preparation. What you complain about, he competes against. So guys, Christians, we got to have a mindset. What is your mindset as a believer? How do you see yourself? Because you got to think right in order to act right. How do you see yourself? I had a friend of mine that I was sharing Christ with him, and he, said, he made this statement to me. It was really kind of funny. He says, he called me Smitty. He says, Smitty, I want you to know I believe what you believe, but I'm just not as serious about it as you are. And I said to him, then you don't believe what I believe. But there are believers that are out there that say, man, you don't have to be that serious about it. So what is your mindset? That's a question that you got to ask yourself. Have you set your mind to say, God, I'm going to be the man, the woman of God that you called me to be? So as we get ready to get into this thing right here, as I want to minister to you for the next few minutes, you know, we're shaped for ministry. We are shaped for our ministry. And you take the, uh, the word shape and you put, uh, put, put, put some letters with it. S, when we say shape, stands for spiritual gifts. So God wants to shape us for ministry. So he takes our spiritual gift. H, he gives us a heart for something. A is ability. P is personality. And E is experience. So God wants to take the spiritual gift he's given you, whatever he's put on your heart, the ability he's given you, the personality that you have, and the experiences that you have, he says, and that becomes your ministry. When they meet up together, God says, that's your ministry. So I want to share with you, as God has allowed me to coach in the league and play for 55 years, 45 years of marriage, for me to share some of my experiences with you as we get ready to talk about what God's word is today. Right up there. He has it up there if you want to put it up there, Aubrey. When I was in high school, I walked in the locker room one day, and our high school coach had three pieces of tape on our lockers. And he had three words written on, the, on that tape. Alignment, assignment, execution. Alignment, assignment, execution. He was letting us know that what, it all starts out with your proper alignment, that you have to be lined up correctly based on the position you play and based on your assignment. You must have the proper alignment. Then he said, you must know your assignment, your purpose. What are you supposed to do? And then he said, you must execute. You must execute that assignment. Alignment. Assignment, execution. When I got into coaching, when I started coaching, I really started seeing the importance of that. Because in all my years of coaching, the very first thing that I would grade my guys on when I looked at the film was their alignment. First thing I, I grade them on, their alignment. When, my, when Eddie lined up or Marshawn lined up in the backfield, they had a specific alignment. If they were lined up right behind the quarterback and the quarterback was right behind the center, their alignment was toes Seven and a half yards from the line of scrimmage. Not seven, not six, seven and a half yards from the line of scrimmage. That was their alignment. And if they didn't line up there, I would tell them, you are out of alignment. If they lined up, we called it offset or in the T position, their rules were, hey, heels five yards from the line of scrimmage. Directly behind the tackle. That's specific. It wasn't just line up over there somewhere, wherever you feel like. No, no, no. Hills five and a half, five, hills five yards from the line of scrimmage, directly behind the tackle. 
If we moved him out to a wide receiver position, it was line up two yards outside the numbers on the line of scrimmage. Or line up two yards inside the numbers a foot from the line of scrimmage. Oh, man, their alignment was specific. And as you're going to see as we talk about what God has for us, our alignment is just that specific. God doesn't just say, line up and do whatever you want to do. There's a specific alignment. Their assignment was specific. Sometimes it was so specific, it was take five steps and then make a 45-degree angle. Sometimes, man, take a 45-degree cut. Sometimes it was just that specific. And then when it came to execution, my rule with the guys was either you got the job done or you didn't. Either you executed the play correctly or you didn't. There's no in-between here. You did it or you didn't. Alignment. Assignment. Execution. Dr. Tony Evans gave a definition of a kingdom man. And as, as I looked at this definition of a kingdom man or a kingdom person, and we could put it up there, it talks about alignment, assignment, and execution. It talks about a kingdom man or woman. Here's our alignment as a kingdom man or woman. A kingdom man or woman places themselves under the rule of God and live their lives in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They place themselves under the rule of God. That's their position. That's our position. We place ourselves under God's rule. That is our position as believers. Our assignment. Instead of choosing our own way, the kingdom man or woman seeks to know the will of God and to carry out his kingdom agenda while here on earth. That is our assignment. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. God said, you're to seek what I want done and carry out my kingdom agenda while here on earth. And then about the execution part of it. He says, when a kingdom man or kingdom woman function according to the principles and the precepts of the kingdom, there will be order authority and provision in their life and if they don't they open themselves and those under their influence to chaos alignment assignment execution for a kingdom man or kingdom woman is very specific we place ourselves under the rule of God instead of choosing our own way we seek to know the will of God we live by the principles and the precepts of the kingdom and God gives us the promise there'll be order authority and provision he says if you don't you open yourselves and those under your influence to chaos. There's a lot of times Sharon and I would be talking about stuff, going through stuff, and whenever I sensed there was chaos, I was sensing somewhere I, I must be out of alignment somewhere. I must not be doing the assignment correctly because there's chaos, there's confusion. So I just want to talk to you today about alignment, assignment, and execution. As I was going in life, situations happened where this question got put to me, and I want to share these three questions with you as we get ready to talk about alignment, assignment, execution. You must answer these questions for yourself about your alignment, your assignment, and your execution. As I was coming to Christ, my friend of mine, Ken Hutchison, led me to Christ. And, you know, he went through, man, he blew his knee out. And, you know, I go in the locker room to console a guy. And I'm in there, man, with Hutch. And, man, you know, he smiled, got a smile on his face and excited and I'm looking at him like, there's something wrong. This guy must be on pain pills or something because his, they just told him his career is over with. Man, your career is over with. And I go in the locker room, and Hutch is in there smiling. And he says, Sherm, I'm excited to see what God has planned for my life. 
You see, I'm a Christian, and nothing happens to my life that's not filtered through God's hands first. And right there in that locker room, he shared the gospel with me. Led me to Christ a few months later, and then walked with me, you know, as close as he could for a couple years. But what happened was, is uh, Romans uh, 6, 1 says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, may it never be. Well, I didn't read that the right way. Mine was, we shall continue in sin so that grace may abound. That's how I read it. I was using grace as a credit card. You know, man, hey, my sins are forgiven. I'm like my friend. I don't take it that serious. And the same guy that led me to Christ is the same guy that called me up one day and said, Sherm, I'm going to come by and I want to ask you to do me a favor. I said, man, anything for you. So he comes over to the house. And he's looking around to make sure nobody else can hear. And he says, Sherm, do me a favor. What's that, Hutch? Would you please stop telling people you're a Christian? He said, you're making it tough on the rest of us who are trying to live for Christ. Would you please stop telling people you're a Christian? The name of Christ is being ridiculed because of you. I didn't get mad at him, say, man, who are you to talk to me this way, man, you know, judging me and all that other stuff. I knew he was correct. I knew he was telling the truth, and I knew he loved me enough to tell me the truth. I knew he loved me that much to tell me the truth. And so after he made that comment, then he looked at me, and you could see anger and pain in his eyes, and you could hear it in his voice. And he asked me this question, and that's the same question that I would ask of you. He looked at me, and he said, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? He wasn't talking about the condition of the fruit. He wanted to look at the condition of the root. He wasn't dealing with what he thought was a symptom. He wanted to go right to the problem. Don't you know who you are? And that's what happens with us as believers. Whenever we see someone that may not be living right, acting right, that is really the very first question we should ask them. And don't you know who you are? Don't you have an idea who you are? Because the thing that we recognize is when we know who we are in Christ, it helps us to understand who we were without Christ. When you know your identity in Christ, it helps you to understand who you were without Christ. I have it down here. Satan wants to continue to deceive those who are not Christians so they never realize their true condition without Christ. That is the deception that Satan gives to non-believers. Satan doesn't want us to ever realize what being a child of God means because it will impact our lives and mindsets so much that he will have a hard time deceiving us. Satan doesn't want us to understand who we are in Christ because he knows if we ever get that truth, if we ever understand our identity, he knows he'll have a hard time deceiving us because I go back to the root. Man, I know who I am. I'm a child of the king. He doesn't want us to understand that. Satan never wants us to realize who we are and whose we are because we will discover the authority, power, freedom, promises, and purpose we have as children of God. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know the power, the authority, the promises, all that we have being in Christ? 
Identity is the key to spiritual growth. That is the key to spiritual growth. Doc Evans has in his book, in, in, in study Bible that he, that he has out, he had the 15 essentials of spiritual growth. 15. And he has number two, identity is the key. He said the first thing that's essential for spiritual growth is conversion. You have to be in Christ. Conversion, being in Christ is the first thing. Secondly, identity is the key. Sin, next, sin is the hindrance. Then it says faith is the action. Faith is the action. Grace is the environment of spiritual growth. The Holy Spirit is the enabler of spiritual growth. The word of God is food for spiritual growth. Prayer gives us access for spiritual growth. The church is the context of spiritual growth. Giving is the generosity of spiritual growth. Trials is the testing of spiritual growth. Temptation is the battle of spiritual growth. Obedience is a response to spiritual growth. Calling is the ministry of spiritual growth. And maturity is the goal of spiritual growth. Identity is the key. Don't you know who you are? Real quick, just tell you who we are. We were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. We were bought with a price. And I'm just going to say these things real quick so we know who we are. So we were bought with a price. So 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So what has become new for us? First of all, we're new creations because Paul said so. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we're new creations. What's new about us? We got a new identity. We are now God's children. John 1.12 says, To those who received him, to them he gave a right to become children of God, as many as believed in his name. 1 John 3.1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. 1 Peter 2.9-10, it says, For you are a chosen people, a royal priest of the holy nation, people belonging to God. And you are to declare the praise of him, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, Once you were not a people, now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you receive mercy. Man, we're children of God. We belong to the king. I remember the guy that led me to Christ, Ken Hutchison. We got out of training camp, and I saw him. He had this real nice Cadillac. He called it the Silver Sugar. He had this Cadillac. He called it the Silver Sugar. And I remember saying to him, because I had been told Christians can't have nice stuff. You can't have nice stuff. So I said to him, man, what you doing with a car like this? He said, man, I'm a child of the king. My daddy wants me to have the best. Man, don't you know who you are? We're new creations. We're God's children. We have a new identity. We got new power. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. We have Holy Spirit power. We have new freedom because of that power. We're free from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, one day from the presence of sin. We're free from the guilt of sin. We're living under new management. We're living under new management. Galatians 2.20 says, For I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And then he says, And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Whenever we have a baptism over here, I always think about that, that verse. When pastor takes him down in the water, I've been crucified with Christ. Then he brings him up. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And I always think when he's helping them out of the baptismal pool, that's when that second part comes in. And the life that I now live, I live by faith. We're living under new management. 
There was a restaurant in Youngstown that closed because the business wasn't, they weren't doing real good business, and went by there one time, and they had a sign, they had closed up business, and they had a sign on, over the door, and it says, now open under new management. Said, I know that you had some complaints about the way things were going before, but I want you to know, man, there's a new manager on the inside. It may look the same on the outside, but you need to know there's something different going on on the inside. When you and I accepted Jesus Christ, we could have got a t-shirt. And on the front of that t-shirt, it says, now living under new management. They may look the same on the outside. They might have the same name, live in the same house. But now, man, they're living under new management. So we have a new manager. We're living under new management. We have a new purpose. Ephesians 2.10, we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared ahead of time for us to walk in. Matthew 5.16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We are trophies of God's grace. We're trophies of God's grace. We have a purpose. We live to bring glory to the king. We got a new purpose. We got a new playbook. The Bible is our new playbook. Is our new guide. I remember when we traded for Marshawn Lynch, he came in, and he, it's funny, he came in, he met his new head coach, he walked around the facility, he met his new teammates, and when he came into the meeting room where I was at, I said, I don't know how you guys did thing in Buffalo, and then I handed him his new playbook. I said, here's how we do it. When you and I became believers, we got a new playbook, the Word of God, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures inspired by God is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God is adequately equipped for every good work. Man, it teaches us what is right, what isn't right, how to get right, and how to stay right. The word of God. We got a new playbook. We got new teammates. Other believers are our teammates. We're teammates. We're in this together. We got new teammates. And that's why Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds, not forsaking the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as we see the day drawing near. As teammates, we're to encourage each other. We encourage each other. I got new teammates. Guess what else you got? You got a new testimony. You should have a new testimony. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter's talking about what happens when a person is living under new management. It says they arm themselves with the attitude that Christ had. It changes their actions. They no longer live the way they used to live. And then it comes, what you got, what happens is you, those people that you used to run with, they ridicule you. They make fun of you, they, you know, because you don't, you don't hang out with them anymore because you got a new testimony. And man, we got new promises. You need to know there are over 7,000 promises in the word of God for believers. Every promise of God is for us. But the thing that I always say is, if you want to experience the promises of God's word, we must apply the word that has the promise. We got to apply it. So Hutch asked me that question. Don't you know who you are? He was dealing with our alignment. Then a guy asked me a question about our assignment. I'm interviewing for a job at the University of Illinois and Lou Tepper, a strong Christian. I go in and the very first question that he asked me in the interview is, why do you coach? Do you coach to make a living or do you coach to make a difference? Why? He said, why? Why do you coach? 
Do you coach to make a living or coach to make a difference? I knew why I coached, because when I was a junior in high school, I saw my high school coach, Clifton Knox, how he came into our community and made such a difference. And I was a junior in high school, and I said, that's it, man. I want to be a coach, and I want to make a difference the way Coach Knox has made in our school. I want to be a difference maker. Then when I became a Christian, God showed me how to do it. He said, don't you know? He said, he asked the question, why do you coach? Do you coach to make a difference or do you coach to make a living? When I became a Christian, it became clear. For you and I, what is our why? Why do you do what you do wherever you work? Why do you do what you do? Whatever your job is, whatever you do, why do you do what you do? As a believer, God makes it pretty clear why we should do what we do. Because God says in Matthew 6, 24, he says, a man cannot serve two masters. Either he will love one and hate the other or hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Why do we do what we do? God says you can't do it to make money. That's what he said. Do you do it to make a living or do you do it to make a difference? That's the question you got to ask yourself today. Whatever you do, are you doing it to make a living or are you doing it to make a difference? Here's what you need to know. Your career is what you get paid to do. Your calling or your ministry is what you were made to do. Your career is what you were paid to do. Your calling or your ministry is what you were made to do. And God gives us a promise in Matthew 6.33. He says, if you will focus on what you were made to do, he says, I'll take care of what you were paid to do. He gives us that promise. Why do you do what you do? Do you do it to make a living or do you do it to make a difference? For Christians, it's all about who we serve. And this is where I want to tell you with this right here. It's about serving. And that's where God says you can't serve two masters. We know that in the book of Joshua. As Joshua had the children together in Shechem. And he said, hey, choose today who you're going to serve. Then he said, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. The temptation in the wilderness. Satan takes him, Jesus up to a high place and says, hey, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give, this, I'll give all of it to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He says, for it is written, man, you shall worship the Lord God and serve him only. Who are you serving? You can't serve two masters. Jesus didn't say we shouldn't serve two masters. He says you can't serve two masters. You can't. Try that. You, you can't serve two masters at the same time. It's like trying to be who you were and who you are at the same time. You want to be somebody different, but you're the same person that, you, that you've always been. So it's all about, in this situation right here, what have you surrendered to? This is about surrender. And you're going to get the point what I'm going to make right here with you. It's about surrender. Who have you surrendered to? What have you surrendered to? This is about surrender. You know how they see when a guy surrenders, he's coming out with both hands up? And he gives into the authority and the power and the purpose of the people or the person that he surrendered to. The word that we need to use is, God, have I surrendered to you? It's all a question of surrender. Just like the question is, don't you know who you are? We go to the question of surrender. Now check this out. When you surrender, surrender leads to obedience, structure, discipline, and commitment. Because you surrendered, 
we're disciplined, we're committed, we're obedient, and we have structure. Surrender does not come out of being obedient, structure, discipline, and commitment. Surrender doesn't come out of that. Discipline, obedience, structure, commitment comes out of surrender. We must surrender first. We must surrender. Just like there's a misconception. How many people go around and say, you know what? Some, let's say someone's hurt you. You know what? After I get over the hurt, I'm going to forgive that person. We got it the wrong way. You have to forgive the person so you can get over the hurt. Because that's the first thing our Lord said, forgive. We have to forgive to get over the hurt. How many times have you heard people say, you know what, I'm going to get my life together first, and then I'm going to become a Christian. Let me get my life together first. No, no. You know, you can't say I'm going to get my life together first, and then I'm going to walk in the Spirit. You have to walk in the Spirit in order to get your life together. And so it's the same thing with surrender and structure. We have to surrender first. So if you find yourself, your commitment, your discipline, and all that other stuff is waning, you have to go back to the beginning and say, man, I haven't truly surrendered. Lord, I haven't surrendered to you. I'm still serving two masters. So God gives us a great promise in Matthew 6.33. Never confuse your source or your resources as your source. That's what mistake that we make. We look at our job and we consider it our source. Our job is a resource. God is our source. Because if you treat your resource like a source, you're gonna obey it. You're gonna do whatever it takes to keep it. But when you say, man, God, you're my source. You will give me another resource. I remember when we got fired, when I was coaching with the Redskins, and driving home that night, I, they had just called Jim Zorn into the office. We knew, we knew he was getting fired. And I said, God, you know what? And I was quoting Ephesians 2.10. Lord, you said that I'm your workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Do good works that you prepared ahead of time for me to walk in. I said, so God, show me the work. I need another resource. You're in control. You said this. And I hold God to his word. You said. That if I function and I look and, and focus on what I'm made to do, you will take care of what I'm paid to do. You're my source, not this job. All the years that I was in coaching, I never had an agent. Never had an agent. We're sitting around, same thing in Washington, and the guy said, hey, man, who's your agent? And every guy's going around talking about who their agent was. Sherman, who's your agent? I said, my agent is Jesus Christ. Because I believe what God's word says. Because in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, God says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean your own understanding. He says, acknowledge him in all his ways. And he says, and he will direct your path. I said, I don't think of anybody better to direct my paths than God himself. So what I discovered is the will of God chases after you. You don't have to chase after it. If you're focused and committed to what God wants you to do, God says, I'll take care of that. You focus on serving me, being surrendered to me. Man, why do you do what you do? You're either serving God or you're serving yourself. And then the last question I have for you today. My son came up, I keep talking about Washington. My son came up, I was with the Seahawks then, and we're getting ready to play the Washington Redskins in the playoffs in 2012. 
My son comes up with my granddaughter and another friend of theirs, and I'm going to take them out to dinner. So we're going to go out to dinner, and we go to this nice restaurant. And so we go there, and the entrees are $30 a piece. I'm figuring for $30, you know, I'm going to have a doggy bag to take back. I'm thinking, man, this is going to be breakfast in the morning, lunch the next day. $30, you know, I go to Cheesecake Factory. You know, I go to Bishop's. I go to these meat and threes. I'm thinking $30. Man, this is going to be serious. So the guy brings the meal out, and he brings it out, and I look at him. I say, man, where's the rest of it? You know, where's the rest of it? Is this the kitty plate? Is this, is this the appetizer? Where's it at? He said, no, that's it. And I'm saying, what? For $30? This is what I get for $30? So I'm sitting there. I'm, man, I'm, I can't enjoy it. I can't enjoy the food or the fellowship. Because I'm sitting there saying, man, look at this meal. But it's funny. I look down at the table and I see my son and my granddaughter and their friend because I'm paying for the meal. They're not having any problem with the meal. They're getting it done. Heads down. Nobody's talking or anything. And I'm sitting there, man, perturbed about this meal. Not getting what I paid for. Now, come on now. You guys understand what I'm talking about. You want to get what you paid for. Now, see, I know, I, know, I know you feel me, what I'm saying. So I'm sitting there, man, and all of a sudden, this is Holy Spirit inspired. God brings 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 to my mind. Don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that you receive from God? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and your spirit, which are his. Here's a question that the Holy Spirit put on my heart at that time and a question I want to give you today. Is Jesus getting what he paid for? In your own life, is Jesus getting what he paid for? We know what it's like to want to get what you paid for. Is Jesus getting what he paid for? This is sometimes we have to do a self-examination. Lord, I'm walking with you as obediently as I can. I'm not, I'm not sinning intentionally. I'm walking with you. Lord, I'm, I'm clued into what the Holy Spirit, I will forgive, I will repent, I will confess. Because I want you to get what you paid for. What did Jesus pay for? So you know if he's going to get what he paid for, there are five things, five purposes that Jesus had. And you can find those five purposes, and it's interesting, they come in sequential order. These five purposes that God has for us. You want to know if Jesus is getting what he paid for? You can start asking the Holy Spirit to convict you in these areas. And you will find it in the great commandment and in the great commission. You will find God's five purposes that he has for us. What he died for. What is the great commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's called worship. Our Lord and Savior died that we would worship him. Worship him. We would surrender to him. Are we surrendered? It's, it starts there. Like I said, this comes in order. Everything, it starts there. It starts with surrender. It starts with motivation. Why do you do what you do? It starts right there. Lord, I'm surrendering to you. I'm worshiping you. This is about you. It's not about me. The great commandment, the love of the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says the second one is as great as this one. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's called ministry. That's our ministry. 
The way we show God that we love him is by loving others. The way we serve God is by serving others. That's what we call ministry. God has given everyone a ministry. We all have a ministry. And God says, your ministry, how you love and serve others, that's your ministry. So God said, it starts with loving me first. Then you love others. Then we go to the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, he says, go, make disciples of all nations. The word is go. That's evangelism. That's sharing the good news. So here's how it works. I've surrendered to God. I'm on my job wherever I'm at. And I'm loving others and I'm serving others. So I'm ministering. Then it says, then I evangelize. I share the gospel. I go to work to work. But I have an opportunity. Uh, I think it's 1 Peter 3.15. It says, be, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. Man, I'm working. I'm doing it God's way. And somebody asked me one day, hey, man, you're a little different. Where do you go to church? How do you handle this stuff? So God says, as we're in our ministry, that's when we evangelize. Remember, there's what we get paid to do and what, we, what we're made to do. So we shouldn't be on our job, not doing our job, and going around saying, man, I'm going to evangelize this whole building. <laughs> That's not how God said He said, do your work as unto the Lord, not unto men. And then use words and you can share. Your life will speak. Salt and light. So what do we have? Man, I'm going to worship God. Then I got my ministry. I'm going to love and serve others. Then I'm going to go. I'm going to share the gospel. Then it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what happens? As I'm sharing the gospel, people come to church, and they get baptized into the family of God. God created us for fellowship. God wants us to belong to a family of believers. God called us to be a family. That's what the baptism part says, baptizing them in the name. How do they get baptized? They have to come to church. They come to church and they join the church and out of obedience, not, it's not necessary for salvation, they get baptized into the family and we fellowship. That's fellowship. So God called us to worship. He called us for ministry. He said we're to evangelize. He says, man, we're to have fellowship. And then the last one, what does it say? Teaching them to obey. Discipleship. That's the last chord right there. God says, because you love me, because of how you're ministering, because of how you're evangelizing, because of how you're having fellowship. He says, now when we come in here, it's discipleship. We're teaching each other how to obey. It's Jesus getting what he paid for. I have it down here. This is how we execute the plan. This is about execution. It begins with us being in proper alignment, placing ourselves under the rule of God as his children. Surrendering our lives to him and living for his glory. Sharing the good news and belonging to a family that desires to be like Jesus. That's how we execute. Alignment. Assignment. Execution. That's how we do it. As I close, I want to close with this story. There's a guy that was a tightrope walker. And he, they had kind of built a platform for him to do this high wire act, and it was over parts of Niagara Falls. And so 
they set this thing up and they advertise it. Hey, come out and see this guy's name was Bill. Come see Bill. He's going to tightrope overnight parts of Niagara Falls. So people are coming out there to see this guy do this tightrope act. And I think really most people were coming to see this cat bite the dust. You know, let's see, you know, this is going to be one of them moments that we might get to witness something. This cat falling in Niagara Falls. So they come out there, and so they kind of have the platform set up. And so this guy comes out, Bill comes out, and he's got his assistants up there with him. And he starts out, and he gets on the high wire act, and he goes over. You know, he's got two bars. You know, I mean, he got the stick, and he's balancing himself. He goes over, and he comes back. The next time he gets up, he picks up uh, two 25-pound dumbbells. He walks over and back with those dumbbells. And people say, man, this guy's pretty good. The next time he gets a wheelbarrow, the wheelbarrow's empty, and he goes over and back with this wheelbarrow. And by this time, man, people are starting to get into this guy, man. And, and even one of the tricks he did, he walked backwards. This cat was really good. He's really good. So he does this thing with the wheelbarrow. Then he gets over, and he has his assistant load the wheelbarrow full of bricks. This wheelbarrow is loaded full of bricks. This cat walks over Niagara Falls and back with this wheelbarrow loaded with bricks. Man, by this time, I mean people are true believers. They believe Bill can do it all. So Bill gets to the end of after he got back with the bricks. He says, how many of you believe that I can go across Niagara Falls and back with a human being in the wheelbarrow? Raise your hand and say, I believe in you, Bill. <laughs> and they raise their hand. I believe in you, Bill. And they just say, I believe in you, Bill. He said, no, you know what? If you really believe me, you'll raise both hands. And they got both hands raised screaming, I believe in you, Bill. I believe in you, Bill. I believe in you, Bill. So finally, Bill, they get quiet, and Bill yells out to the crowd, give me a volunteer. Who'll get in the wheelbarrow? Everybody's hand came down. All the hands came down. See, there's a difference between believing in and believing. We raise our hands in church. We got one hand raised, we got two hands raised, and we sing songs of praise, and God, we love you, we trust you, and then God asks us to get in the wheelbarrow, and we put our hands down. God is going to ask you and I to get in the wheelbarrow. And just like he asked Abraham in Genesis 22, when he says, he tested Abraham, and he, asked, he said, Abraham, I want you to go to the mountain. I'll reveal to you where it is. And I want you to offer your son, your only son, Isaac, on the altar for me. And then we know in the story is he has Isaac strapped down. He's getting ready to, you know, take the knife to him. God says, stop. He says, Abraham, now I know that you fear me because you didn't withhold your son, your only son that you love. That story is taught in two different ways. When this says, God says, now I know that you fear me. He said, well, God, you know everything. It's taught one of two ways. One way, one way it's taught is that God was letting Abraham know that he feared God. So some people read it this way. When you read that verse, it says, Abraham, now I know that you know that you fear me because you didn't withhold your son, your only son whom you love. God will put you and I to the test so that we know if we love him or if we fear him. When God asks us to get in the wheelbarrow, 
and we refuse to get in the wheelbarrow, God says, now I know that you know that you don't fear me. Now I know that you know that you don't love me because you withheld this from me. Man. Then the other way it's taught is, is God is saying, now I know that you fear me because God experienced that obedience. God experienced, God said, now I know I experienced that love, that obedience. Oh, man. God's going to ask us to get in the wheelbarrow. What's he going to say? Now I know that you know. Do you know what is your mindset? Don't you know who you are? You're a child of the king. Don't you know who your daddy is? Do you know why you do what you do? Because you surrender to the king. And you live to bring glory to his name. And you don't worry about what you get paid for because he said, I'll take care of that. You just focus on what you were made for. Is Jesus getting what he paid for? We understand what it means to get what you paid for. We all understand that principle. And God has let, it, let us know what it means, what it takes for us to know. So that's a question you must ask yourself. One of the best pep talks that I heard my coach give one time was also one of the shortest. And so I'll leave you with this short pep talk. We have been working all week getting ready to play this game. And so, you know, we've been going through all the stuff that we had to do. And so what we would do, we sit in the locker room, and man, we're just waiting. You know, the head coach will come out before you go out on the field. He's going to give us a good word. You know, he's going to charge it up and say, man, this, this, and this. So we're sitting in there in the locker room, and we're waiting. Man, we're on the, sitting on the edge of our seats. And I'll never forget this. The head coach walked out, and he looked at us, and he said, men, we know what we have to do. Then he turned and started walking to the door and looked back at us and said, Let's go do it. Church, we know what we have to do. Let's go do it. Amen. Amen.